the Master's in Counseling Program at Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling present this podcast as a resource for aspiring and current professionals, as well as members of the greater community. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent those of Multnomah University or its faculty of Alternative Behavioral Therapy or New Pattern Counseling. Smart Counsel is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Counsel has been produced by Reese Basimio and Joshua Moore. Inside my head And are these things that I despise But to be broken isn't such a bad disguise You can't break down can't give in All you need is love Welcome to Smart Counsel Empathy Blockers Smart Counsel is a podcast dedicated to resources and perspectives for providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma I'm Reese. I'm Joshua And we are here with a special guest, Colin white Pedo. Hello, Colin Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I am very happy that you're here. So for our listeners, unfortunate enough to not know you in person, uh, do tell, what is your corner of the counseling world or the social work world? I'm a clinical social worker. Excellent. And in my career, I've had the privilege of really being able to meet my clients physically and emotionally where they're at, doing a lot of community-based work, both in the crisis setting and not the crisis setting, mostly with adults. You do really important work, and I'm really glad you do it. So you drive to your clients? I do drive to my oh, clients. That yeah. sounds interesting. I used to drive my clients. <laughs> that uh, sounds even more interesting. It was. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of answers. I don't do that anymore. Okay. What's one of your favorite aspects of what you do now? I'm in an innovative program that really focuses on building a relationship with people, meeting them where they're at. I'm not bound by um, certain metrics and treatment plans and ideas that things need to happen in a certain timeline, which is kind of different than some of the programs I've worked with in the past. You know, there's no one who's looking at, did my client meet a certain benchmark in three weeks? Or did I provide an intervention for two hours this week that then came with whatever outcome? In other words, I think my employer really recognizes that there's the gray that exists uh, and people's progress cannot be itemized. That sounds really refreshing. Yes. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people who would have a sigh of relief like, oh, that feels maybe like that's something that's missing in some programs or institutions. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you really get to prioritize the person and maybe granted the money and the finances and the structure are all important, but it sounds like you get to maybe suspend those temporarily or put those as a secondary priority compared to the actual connection with the person. Right. I think what we found is when we connect and when we build that relationship, that's when everything else falls into place. Cool. So we were talking about tangents earlier. Here's here's a tangent. I remember when I was doing my licensure process in a clinical setting and doing a lot of case management and working shoulder to shoulder with very wonderful social workers. Granted, I'm not, I'm not sure there's a terrible social worker out there, but I remember very much thinking that case management wasn't quite my thing. It was 
good necessary work. I was glad to be doing it, but I didn't really enjoy it. And I often thought to myself, you know, there's a reason I I got a counseling degree and not a social work degree because the work is different that way. But for you, do tell what drew you to social work instead of counseling. And by the way, I'm very glad that you did because you're a fabulous social worker. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's actually pretty simple. When I went from thinking I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, things of the mind that fascinated me to psychiatrists, and I did some rotations at a hospital and realized, what is it that I actually want to do? And it was that I wanted to empower people to help themselves. And so the simple answer is, I, I think I Googled that. Helping people help themselves. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure that's what I did years ago. And I think the two words that popped up was social work. And honestly, I did not know what that was. So when I started to research and I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. This is the heart and soul that I feel like I have. So then when I started looking at my higher education, it all fell into place. So I never really thought twice about why didn't I go through counseling versus social work. Over the years, I've heard things like, well, if you go into social work, that it can be kind of like a Swiss army knife of degrees. And so all these different tools that you come up with and all these different things that you get in your education. So I stuck with it and pursued a clinical license, which I have now. That's amazing. And that's really delightful that you were able to to search that out and that the answers were just right there for you. And I also want to say, in case I was unclear at all, I have so much love for social workers. And I feel like my, my experience was so very enriched by working in a clinical setting with social workers and doing case management. I am hugely in debt to the social work community for making me the professional that I am today. So shout outs to the social work group. So today we are talking about empathy blockers, and Colin, you pitched this topic to us. Tell us a little bit why. What excites you about blocks to empathy? Well, in my current job, I get to work kind of like an island. Uh, I have a couple of other social workers around in my office, and I'm in the medical community now. And what I have found is that there's a lot of different education that goes into medical professionals, that goes into mental health professionals, and we have different scopes of practice. So as I sit there and I try to uphold my social work values, my kind of paradigm, I started to think about what is it about some of our clients that we seem to be more apt to provide a better level of customer service than others. We may have a client that has a similar drug addiction and one client gets labeled as their addiction. Every reason that something's going bad gets chalked up to that. And that's not something exclusive to the medical community whatsoever. I've seen that in every program that I've worked in is uh, the minimizing of someone's story. Mm. So I started to think about it. I was like, okay, so if I take a detail like that, like addiction to insert the name of the drug, and I also have that is something that could describe another client of mine. Why then do we look at the first client with a higher degree of empathy versus the second one? There is this differential. And so I started to wonder about it. I asked uh, one of the nurses in our clinic who I work very closely with, and she said, yeah, and she's had many more years in her career than me. She goes, that's true. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that, you know, this person kind of reminds me of a family member. I don't know if it's this person was more polite to me. I don't know what it is. Could be like counter-transference or transference or something. It certainly could be. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that we learn about in counseling and social work. And I don't know how much other helping professions really learn about that. About counter-transference. Yeah. About, I think, some of these human elements of what it means to be a helping professional. Human helping a human Mm -hmm. in the huge complexity that goes into that. Yeah, because any helping service happens in the context of a relationship, 
whether it's a relationship with your counselor, with your surgeon, with your dentist, with your mechanic, there's human contact that happens that facilitates the rest of the, the service. Now that I think about it, not all, not all services provided are accompanied by training and how to relate to the person to whom you are providing the service. Absolutely. And so I, I sit there and I wrestle with this idea. So one night I was walking through the neighborhood and it was late at night and I was walking down the street just like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. And certainly there was a bunch of literature that I hadn't reviewed already. I thought, okay, what if I made a checklist and I could go through and I could say, well, if this new person who I've never worked with before checks these boxes, then I can anticipate for myself that I may be hesitant to help them further with this, that I might treat them differently. And then what I started to realize was that's not going to work. Because every person has their own story, and I treat every person as their own individual reality. I don't say, okay, I can take this one-size-fits-all, or if you check these boxes, or if you you know, have this diagnosis or whatever, that my approach is going to be the same. I like where you're going with that in, the ter- in terms of looking at each person individually, taking their individual story, and recognizing that there, there can't be a one-size-fits-all checklist. However, I really love that idea of that checklist uh, in that that sort of exercise would allow you to really identify and articulate, here are my trigger buttons. And when at least one is present, I know I will be a little bit vulnerable. If all nine are present, I will be especially vulnerable. Which I don't, And I don't know that that has to be a one-size-fits-all approach. That sort of awareness, I think, would be really valuable. Yeah, I totally agree. I think when you figure out that awareness and what that feels like, when you're blindsided by it, which has happened to me many times in session, that I know what's going on. And I can kind of remove myself and zoom out a little bit so I can be the best service provider in that moment versus managing all these things that are coming up for me. Thankfully, my employers, I have the opportunity to meet with a clinical supervisor every week and process what it means to do this work and process things that come up. So it's interesting to kind of cultivate that awareness, realize what it is. And, you know, I think what I'm realizing the further I get my career is this wasn't something that was going to get finished and taught just in school or just in internship. This is an ongoing learning. So I'm constantly surprised about things that trigger me or things that used to and now they don't and vice versa. It's a very fluid process, the process of being triggered and the process of becoming aware of your triggers. So we were talking about countertransferences and triggers that could potentially maybe distract you from who the actual person is and distract you from really being present with with the person in their story. So we'll be talking about empathy blockers, things that could come between you and the person, hinder the relationship from really developing. But before we do that, let's get a working definition of what empathy is. How would you define empathy? For me, the way that I very simply define empathy is to literally feel one other person's experience, which I think is impossible to really put yourself in their shoes and to understand what it's like to be them. I can never do that. Mm -hmm. And no one can ever do that for me. And I don't expect that. So in the clinical practice, the way that I see it is that I'm open and that I'm meeting them where they're at and I'm being educated by them. I think I know what you're going through is like one of the worst things that a person could ever say and something that therapists should never, ever, ever, ever say. Never, ever, ever. It's a good, this is a good thing to like say, hey guys, don't, don't say this. Then I always think about uh, mirror neurons in the brain. It's a system in our brain discovered in 1997 that basically showed that our brain does on a level, there's a system that mimics other people's systems. So we do feel what they feel, but not understand or experience what they experience. There's some sort of fascinating neurological system that allows us to be moved when they seem moved. 
And it's, it's a very sensitive system, very complex system. And I think maybe other therapists might be more in tune than others. Would you say that your empathy skills are honed or learned? I'm thinking neurologically, but what do you think about that experientially? Do you get better at empathy? It's an ongoing fluid process. I think uh, if I examine some of the relationships I've had with the clients for extended time, mm-hmm. I see highs and I see lows. And when I look back on it, as time goes on, I'm more aware of, oh, wow, I was a lot easier to work with that day. Mm-hmm. Maybe for these reasons, because of what's going on for me or whatever phone call I just hung up on. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm constantly honing it. I think in my role now, where I'm providing this uh, illumination of a different perspective and paradigm, that isn't something I could have done at the beginning because uh, it takes confidence. It certainly takes confidence to stand up and be vulnerable about what it means to be a human and regard someone else as as human Mm -hmm. when we may be tied to outcomes and wanting to see certain things happen and those aren't happening. Mm -hmm. I think that can be really difficult uh, from a professional satisfaction lens. So if they're not getting better, what does that mean about me? Like those kinds of dialogues in your head. Absolutely. You know, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating. I think sometimes, see, whatever profession we're looking at, we have a problem and we want to help. We want to fix it. And we have an idea of how that's supposed to go. We do intervention. We, you know, change whatever. And then the outcome isn't what we hope for or what anyone hoped for. If we're talking about in the human service profession, what the client wants is really what my job is. It's not about what do I want. It's not about what I think is right. That is never how I try to work. And as that comes up naturally, because it certainly does, I have to check myself and check myself and check myself. Because that's not the motivation. It's not about my motivation for them. It's about empowering and inciting motivation in them. I tend to agree. I think that's awesome. Empathy seems really closely connected on a neurological level to to attunement, but on a more relational level to uh, respect as well. Attunement sounds way more complex. It, it's super complex. <laughs> and in I, my opinion. <laughs> I, I think I have a, a basic grasp of it, and I'm only going to claim that much. But it's the, the neurological process of recognizing and appropriately responding to a person's internal state, their internal emotional state. Mm -hmm. Everything I know about it, I learned from Dan Siegel in The Developing Mind. Mm. Uh, Great book. We should all read. We should all read. All counselors should read that. Probably all new parents as well. But empathy is like respect also in like what you're talking about, Colin, where you really value the person as the person and recognize that they have their own process. They have their own journey. They're not in your office or in your services to be sculpted into a little mini you, but to become the best version of their own selves. And I feel like a a true empathetic approach will recognize that and value that for them so that our, our goal is to come alongside, get inside their experience with them and help it to become better rather than imposing here's another standard, here's an aspiration, here's a hope for you. I mean, admittedly, we, we, we have hopes for our clients, yes. but hopefully we're able to suspend those or at least ignore those a little bit. And I, I don't want to get up too far on this direction, but I think there is a spectrum where some therapists disagree with what we're saying right now. And uh, I'm okay with respectfully agreeing to disagree. Not all therapists are so non-directive. And I'm not talking re- non-directive in the Rogerian way, but just non-directive in the, like, they are here directing. This is their time. All right. So we are talking about empathy blockers and going down the list of what are some specific blocks to empathy. So I pulled off this list from the Relationship Foundation at trf.net. And it's a list of some things not to do as well as some things 
to do to express empathy. So one example of an empathy blocker would be one-upping. And this would be an example of someone says they have a problem and you say you have a bigger problem. They say they stubbed their toe. You say, well, I broke my leg. Or they say, I'm so sad, I want to cry. And you say, well, I'm so sad, I want to kill myself. So why, why, why is this a problem? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think from my perspective, if I'm sitting in this chair and I'm in my social worker therapist role, I started to say statements like that. It's incredibly minimizing. And, you know, so much of the past informs the present, affects the future. And sometimes people really want us and need us to meet them in the present. What would be a better alternative to one-upping? Someone says, I stubbed my toe, I feel so sad. You can go basic 101, you can reflect. Say, right. I feel really sad right now. Ouch. Or tell me more about that. How did you stub, did you stub your toe? <laughs> so not terribly complicated. And I think sometimes there's advanced techniques where you're breaking down the cognition and you're you're going a level deeper where you're saying, you seem really frustrated by this or this is a big deal for you. I'm trying to go on what is what is the internal voice in their head and then and then try to give a voice to that, though that's typically discouraged <laughs> from, you know, beginners. Well, that makes me think, too, like if someone tells me they stubbed their toe that I don't want to say that's not the that's not a big deal. That's often not what I hear. You hear the cognition. You hear what's actually in their head. Yeah. So I would say, wow. So this is just this is the straw that broke the camel's back. This is what is really what you, you, you are so frustrated that you're having such a bad day. And now you stubbed your toe. So I would almost wonder what proceeds and now I stubbed my toe. Because it seems kind of strange if that was the only thing someone shared with me. That's not typically uh, something that people use the time with me for. Yeah, it's strange. But ultimately, you also, you know, being a a good social worker, you're like, yeah, there's a lot more going on here. There's no doubt in your mind. Oh, there's always more going on. You can, Yeah, we can pick something to talk about. Right. (laughs) Which admittedly, my my toe stubbing was just a hypothetical, like I need to throw something out. Yeah, yeah. But I could think... Think of something like somebody saying, I'm having a problem drinking too much alcohol. And I, I, I would look at that and say, okay, mm. you're having a problem drinking too much alcohol. That has a context. That There's a lot more a going reason. on here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a second empathy blocker would be the advising slash fixing conundrum. A client may say, I am super, super stressed about this test that I have to take. If I were to try to advise or fix, I might say, oh, well, you should just study. Oh, or you should be sure you get a good night's sleep. Or you should make sure you eat breakfast or take really good notes. Or if you have to guess, guess B. And I could just jump straight into throwing out suggestions, solutions, and advice. Why is this a problem? It doesn't give the person the opportunity to be independent of you and empower themselves to fix and come to their own solution that makes sense for them. Things that I might suggest may not make sense. You know, and that starts to turn gears in my head when I think about if I meet with my supervisor and I ask for advice or, you know, how, how can I help you? What would be helpful? Sometimes I don't know. And so that's when you want someone to give you advice. It's when you want to kind of take in someone's ideas, consider them. For me, if I, a uh, client asks me, what do you think? What, why is it really about what I think? You know, what does that mean? You value my thought that much. There's so many different pathways I might go with that. If I feel inclined and I notice when I'm on a home visit or when I'm, you know, right in the thick of something, it's like this person needs help. They cannot execute this simple task or whatever it is. I'm going to ask for permission. 
before I go on and give someone advice or teach someone how to do something? Because it can be incredibly demeaning. It could be. When you jump straight to advice, you assume that the person does not know that thing already, which they very well might. Yep. Or if they don't know it, they may not want to learn or they may not be in a teachable mind space. So yes, it can be, it can be demeaning or it can, or our advice can come across as just unwanted advice or the advice we present could be maybe according to a value framework that is alien to the person. And I actually really gravitated towards the first thing you said about doesn't give them an opportunity to be independent of you. For my original supervision, for my associate license, worked with somebody who really pushed me to think of how is this going to transfer into their life independently? How is your relationship going to be predictive of their other relationships? And I studied that a little bit later on in my career and found some really interesting research and articles about how to get your clients independence and some research that suggested that certain approaches actually prolonged dependence on the therapist, which if your goal is independence, that's a bad thing. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, how do we promote independence? Maybe we don't encourage it or do encourage it by the way that we give empathy or don't give empathy. A similar empathy blocker would be educating. Someone might say, I'm super anxious. and Or someone might say, I'm, ha- I'm stressed out about my kids. They never listen to me. And you jump straight to, well, here's this book you should read. Here's this podcast you should listen to. Here's the seminar you should go to. Why would that be less helpful? It jumps ahead. It assumes that, like you were saying, someone's in a teachable mind space. I like how you said that because I'm not always in the space to give advice or receive advice from people. No, 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 no. That's a a limited time frame for me. I'll be honest. Um, Before 10 p.m., I have to have had dinner and I have to have (laughs) You might know when you're in a teachable mindset, but uh, is the therapist as likely to get it? (laughs) <laughs> Correct. <laughs> right. Maybe not. Maybe maybe less likely than I am to guess that I'm in mind space. I don't know. And what I learned about myself is that I need to then ask to be given advice when I know I'm in a space that I'm going to hear it. So I feel like if you if you just do the educating straight out the gate and it's really jumping ahead and assuming that that's where this conversation's going to go, and it may not. And I can't help but wonder, but if you do actually provide the empathy that they want and need and will benefit from that that teachable space, actually, that narrow gap may widen. Uh, Maybe they'll spend more time being teachable if you have an appropriate clinical approach. I think uh, what you're talking about is um, over time building value and earning earning respect and giving respect. Rapport. Mm -hmm. Rapport. Um, (laughs) The overarching umbrella for me is dignity. Yeah. You know, recognizing this power differential that is in this relationship of being a therapist, being a social worker, and the person is telling you everything about themselves you have to have this very solid foundation to be heard and if you are speaking then you're hoping that you're being heard if you're just in listening mode then you should be being the one doing all the hearing Mm -hmm. so it's this kind of push-pull that can happen for sure and educating can be similar to what in theological circles we might call exhortation or what in other circles we might call confrontation where well, actually, those, those are very different things. But if you want to make the move of I'm going to teach you something or I'm going to speak into your life or I'm going going to tell you the painful truth about something, a visual that I like to use is to consider what happens when you when you drop a vase. In the metaphor, the, the vase is the word of truth that you are imparting to the person. And there's a big difference between dropping that vase onto a cement floor where it would shatter and it would be destructive 
and dropping that same vase from the same height onto a mattress. And I think that the the relationship context is the mattress, it's the padding. When there is no relationship context, there's no support for dropping the bomb of truth and it will be more destructive than not. But when there is the context of a relationship, a well-developed relationship that's had a chance to develop over time and has trust and rapport, then that relationship can absorb the impact of a painful word of truth much more effectively than a relationship that is very new or very strained. So, so there may be a time and place to, to educate, to confront, to exhort, to speak a painful word of truth. But that would be after a long time of sitting with the person and demonstrating that you are an ally, that you are supportive, that you're not leaving, that you do have the best interests at heart, that you that you actually know them. I think my other issue with this idea of educating and the particular examples that, that I threw out of, hey, check out this book, check out this podcast. There's a, there, there's a select group of people for whom giving book resources will be really good. But in a lot of cases, I chafe a little bit at that because it feels very non-relational. It feels almost a little bit dismissive to say, oh, you have this problem, go read this book and this book will fix you as if any book can have that much power. And it also feels a little bit dismissive saying, I don't actually want to sit with you and talk with you. I want you to go fix your problem away from me, but I want the credit for giving you this book recommendation. So I'm a little reluctant to just willy-nilly throw out book and resource recommendations, although in the right time and place, they would be perfect. Yeah, I think, you know, when those kind of things happen, it is incredibly different to recommend a website, a video, a book with a disclaimer that this may not be useful to you. It may not be useful. Because I know if someone recommends me something and I go to view it, sometimes if I don't come back with the same level of interest, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I get it? You know, they, they recommend it for a reason. Why am I not smart enough? Why was it? Why did it not press the button for me? What was it? And then it becomes this whole self-defeating right. bigger problem. Another internalized shame narrative. And we already have enough problems with internalized shame narratives. <laughs> Another empathy blocker is analyzing, in which case a person is talking about their problems and you come back with, oh, well, it seems like your problem is this. Or I see this pattern. Or, oh, well, I notice that whenever this happens, then that happens. It's funny because technically it could be good reflecting and good summarizing. And there is a component of that that demonstrates you have been listening. But it's one of those pieces of feedback that is maybe technically correct, but not really helpful. Why is that? Oh, I have a hard time with this one because uh, I can see how helpful it would be. I think it's a timing. It's a timing. It's like what you said about the relationship when you really know someone and always asking for permission to always give something like that because you're going out on a limb by uh, kind of being more directive in that way. Yeah. Uh, and absolutely only go on the limb after validating what is before you. I can see that one being really hard because just it's just gray enough. It you is. Know? It is fairly <laughs> gray. gray enough. It is. And, and in some points <laughs> that would be fantastic. Uh, and, and some people, you know, I think that's part of the conversation. Right? How do we work with each other? What about my style is good for you? What is not? Some people do want that. Yeah. Uh, and that's what they would say. Okay, check, check, check. This is valuable. I felt like my time was honored today. And other people, they, they might just feel like they're along for the ride. I think this one could be a problem in that I know when I'm being analyzed. I can I can read that in other people. I can I can tell when I'm being summed up and labeled, and it makes me feel very small. It makes me feel like I have become a specimen to you, and I'm no longer a person. And again, it can be done well. It can be done poorly. I'm thinking about this in the context of what I think a lot of committed partners discover after after living together for for a while. 
they'll come home, one of them's had a really stressful day, and they'll start talking about it and venting and going on about this thing that happened and that thing that happened and oh, it was so hard. And then what they really want is for the other person to say, wow, I hear you, that sounds really hard, do you wanna hug? But, but then when the other person does not do that and instead goes straight to solutions mode and says, oh, well, I'll go beat them up or I'll go fix the problem or I'll, I'll analyze you. It's not what the person's looking for. They're not looking for solutions, they're looking for presence. And so the analysis can become a less helpful thing in that sort of scenario. I like the word you use there, presence, because it makes me think about empathy and even a more simple definition being true presence, sharing space, yes, sharing feeling, sharing emotion. And maybe it's a not a two-way sharing, as it often isn't in our context of therapist-client. To be truly present for someone, how rare that is. It's true. And it's, it's sometimes shocking to me how rare it is. And maybe I take it for granted because I'm in the counseling world. I run into a lot of people who are very good at being present, even in very short, casual encounters. And I forget sometimes that we went to school for several years and paid many thousands of dollars to be trained well in being present. And not everybody has been through that same rigorous training. Another empathy blocker could be consoling. Someone is talking about a problematic situation that they're having, and you might say, oh, well, I'm sure I'm sure things will get better, or things will let up, or don't worry, be happy. There's not a lot of consoling you can do without possibly being wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things will get better. Well, sometimes they don't. I'm thinking again about a story shared by one of our professors Mm-hmm. after experiencing the loss of a family member yes. and receiving some some maybe well-meaning gift cards, but that were just, just really gut-wrenching, horrible, Terrible. you know, throwing out platitudes of, well, your child's in a better place now. And C.S. Lewis does write a little bit about this, and he's interesting on this topic too, by the way. What does yeah. he say? There's a little articles about it after his wife passed away. I don't, I'm not super well-briefed on all the context, but he did enjoy making people squirm by like younger, uh, young adults who would come up and try to express their sympathies, he would insist that they explain the statement or he would insist on them elaborating until they got extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. Because sometimes we say things that just don't make any sense. And, you know, a very deep intellectual is going to notice that and, and say, like, let's stay with this and talk about this for a second. Um, what did you mean by, <laughs> I hope you feel better soon, you know, <laughs> or something like that until they got really, really deeply uncomfortable. Also, I'm just going to throw out there that, cliches in general a are just bad and awful but b (laughs) are definitely empathy blockers we should never use them in therapy all right so we've been talking about more mechanical empathy blockers and these are things that you could say that are not really helpful or wording phrasing things that don't go over very well in a counseling room so this next portion of the episode we'll we'll be talking about empathy blocker style but these are more attitudes and mindsets that a clinical person may be holding, may be operating in, that can be the foundation for whatever the mechanical error is. So this is a list that is pulled uh, loosely from the Person-Centered Counseling in Action series by Dave Mearns and Brian Thorne. And it's a list, again, of more mindsets and attitudes. So we'll work through these and see why they're bad. So one example of a more attitude mindset block to empathy would be a lack of personal development in the counselor in their own self-awareness, their own self-acceptance. Why is this a problem? It makes me wonder, you know, going into this profession, what, what is it that we ask of people that come and face us and share so much of their story and where we guide them? If we haven't done that ourselves, 
if we haven't been on the other side, if we haven't examined ourselves, are we really affording them an equal playing field as much as possible? And how can one be an experienced guide if one cannot look at their own self? That's true. I'm thinking about a, a guide on a hiking trail or a, a rock climbing guide. I would not really want a rock climbing guide who has never rock climbed. Having a guide who has done at least something similar is is reassuring because, you know, they, they know what it's like. They know what it's like to be on the other side. You know, they know what it's like to be in the counselor's chair. They know how to be careful with that. And yeah, if a counselor has not done their own inner work, not gone through their own counseling process, not gone through their own trauma recovery, addictions recovery, mental health recovery, it does limit their perspective on just what their person is experiencing. I mean, to be quite frank with you, I would be shocked if a program at a graduate level did not produce graduates who had done a degree of self-introspection, looking at biases, looking at stereotypes, looking at upbringing, looking at all these things that help to paint a picture of what is my lens. Uh, that is something I had in my education. And, and I think, you know, you mentioned, okay, there's counselors like that. And I think it's true. We can fake it. We can act like we're really looking within, and when it gets too painful, we step away. We can have that inner shame narrative and be afraid of ourselves. That happens, and don't want to go there because we don't have empathy or grace with ourselves in our relationship with ourselves. That happens. Yeah. If a person has done their own inner work, they have worked through their own wounds, identified their own lens. I love that you said that. They know who they are, what they're bringing into the room. I think that then empowers them to really comfortably sit with a, a wide variety of people because they know themselves. And so they can sit with somebody who has had a radically different experience than them. And that will present a flavor to the relationship, but not a not an insurmountable one because this counselor can then be very confident in that difference because they know themselves. And because they know themselves, they have a solid point of reference with which to get to know the other person without being threatened, without being swayed, without being overwhelmed, because they have done the work to know themselves. Another mindset-oriented block to empathy could be feelings of discomfort and lack of confidence in relationships. Ooh. <laughs> What's your thought, Josh? Uh, my thought, I have a, a tad bit of uh, Asperger's, as is very evident to people who are close to me. Uh, you could ask my wife and she would say a little, but it might not be so obvious to my clients. It might not be so obvious to my friends, and it might not be obvious to people who didn't know me growing up. But yeah, as a, someone who's personally gone on an interesting journey of uh, memorizing things that are typically intuitively learned by other people, I imagine that everybody has to do that on some level when you're entering into a giant, well, you're into, you're entering a field where you're going to interact with a lot of different types of people. And you're not just going to naturally connect with the person at the lunch table that you happen to think might already connect with you or might be like you, but that you are going to have to connect with a lot of people, especially if you don't get to choose your clients. And I wonder if this might talk about a lack of confidence in one's own relationship skills. Well, I'm picturing myself at age 10 and being terrified to walk up to someone and strike up a conversation. Which, yes. Okay, admittedly, once in a while, I'm still terrified to walk up to someone and strike up a cold conversation because... Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm, I'm, I think to myself, I don't know what to do. What do I talk about? How can you how can you contain something in the room if you're visibly uncomfortable? You're not going to be able to bring containment to a really traumatic story if you are extremely disheveled. And I think there's a time and a place to look disheveled. 
like when your client doesn't and they should, sometimes that's appropriate, but that's very advanced. And, and I think it's good that you have control over that, but that, yeah, not having containment because you're too affected by it. Mm-hmm. And that's becoming maybe the main theme in the room. Oh, you're affected by that. Or you don't have the skills to engage with the client in the way that they need. Yes. Yeah, recognizing that a client situation may be, again, so different from yours. And if you have not experienced something like that, or not experienced with experiencing things that are different, it, you might unwittingly demonstrate shock or horror or just surprise <laughs> or maybe too much curiosity, which can also be objectifying. Yeah, it can be problematic. Yes. Or if the client becomes... There's research on that one too, by the way. Yes, there is. <laughs> or if the client should become emotionally activated and you become stressed out by that, that's not good. Yeah. Also, if they become emotionally activated, it's part of your task to help them regulate in the moment if they need it. And if you are also becoming dysregulated, then that becomes a problem. And that, that's an interesting question that maybe we can't answer here today, but I, I do wonder if you can gain uh, said some insight on when is being emotionally activated by your client disruptive versus helpful? Well, it can be both yeah, at the same really time. Can yeah. I can see where you're chewing <laughs> on that because my first thought is, well, it could be helpful if you're keeping it to yourself mm-hmm. and you're recognizing that you're realizing that experience is going on for yourself you're taking care of yourself in that moment whether it's reaching for your water bottle taking a breath and then my second thought is if you display mm-hmm. that you are dysregulated then that could really just upset everything yeah. that is going is on there, is there a version where you are emotive and that would be helpful to your client. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, there, it's complex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's kind of one of those times when I may use self-disclosure to say, yeah. oh, you know, I, I, I feel a little uncomfortable when you mention something like that. It, yeah. You he's know, a little psychodynamic. It, I love it. It, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because anytime I share something about myself, it is yeah. very, very pointed and it yes. is very rooted in a foundation of a strong relationship, especially if I'm going to share an emotion. And it, it's advanced, so it's not necessarily for beginners. Yeah, because it, it's really easy to screw up, too. Yeah. Uh, it, stakes are a little higher. <laughs> the stakes are higher, and it happens. This yeah. kind of thing happens. We get affected emotionally by our clients, and in some jobs, I've had the luxury of being able to take care of myself between that and the next client, and in some jobs, I haven't. I don't know that that's something that we are uh, really taught about. It's mm-hmm. not something I necessarily learned in the classroom. Of You need to take care of yourself throughout your day because you're human. And because things are they're going to tick the emotional radar here and there, and you're not going to see it coming. I think sometimes, you know, uh, I know in some cases, because I do work with trauma, sometimes I start a little late because I'm trying to move into the next session with some objectivity. And I have a lot of informed consent on that, thank goodness, which is very helpful. My clients know like, oh, he might be a little late and there's always good reasons for that. And he would do that for us if we needed. And so my office is maybe a little bit more casual and that's kind of front loaded and reminded a lot. But yeah, I mean, I've had client, I've had sessions too, where there wasn't time to get together. And you know, how do you, how do you balance that when you're like, hmm, I can't hide this. Uh, And my technique has always been, so I had something that was a little disruptive. It's going to take me a couple minutes to get it together. I'm telling you this because I don't think I'd be able to hide it from you anyways. We're not going into that, you know, but, you know, we don't we don't go into it because it's not about me. But yeah, what do you do when you just can't? Some of that I think will fall back on your established discipline of self-care. If you are generally a healthy person, then you will be able to absorb these impacts more safely. There's always going to be those days when everything hits the fan and you don't have any time for self-care. And there might even be times when you have a couple of days like this in a row. But if those happen in the context of weeks and months of generally healthy boundaries, getting enough sleep, eating well, 
then you can handle that. And then you can plan to have a recovery period after that. But yeah. if it's too many of those days in a row, then you use up all your reserves and you right. become burned down and frustrated. Well, and sometimes it's just an acute moment with a client. And so I actually have some of my more difficult clients. My clients can schedule online, but they can't schedule after uh, certain people. Like I, I intentionally have it block off time. Uh, so I am very protective of certain times after certain clients because you just can't have you can't have them in certain orders, you know? And when you're in private practice, you know, you, you can sometimes control that with enough, you know, computer savvy skills. So there's some self-care things and some preventative care things. But when you work with trauma, you can't really predict what's going to happen in the session. So when we're talking about empathy blockers, mm-hmm. um, this one isn't necessarily on the list, but yeah. it sounds like poor self-care Ooh, is yeah. an empathy blocker yeah. <laughs> in that if you are not a healthy person, you cannot empathize. And what I tell my students is that they themselves are their most important, effective counseling tool because they are the relationship and the relationship is the most effective factor. And if you are not a healthy person, you cannot be in a healthy relationship with anyone, much less someone who is also in unhealth. I think that goes further, kind of what you're talking about, your private practice. Mm -hmm. Self-care to me is so often uh, just limited to how do I take care of myself? What are my hobbies? What do I like to do? How do I have fun? Yeah. It is also really important to practice in the workplace. Yeah. It's a great interview question. How do you practice self-care in your workplace? I ask that of employers that I'm considering accepting a job with because I want to know because this is going to happen. It's going to happen unpredictably and I'm not going to have, you know, an evening or a weekend before I have to go to my next assignment i may have five minutes yeah and so how do i do self-care in that five minutes at my desk in my office in my car wherever i am yeah in my office i have a lot of object lessons and a lot of illustrations but i also have things from home that are mine that are not for clients that just remind me that i have hobbies and activities and so i used to fix sewing machines and i have some extremely old antique sewing machines from the 1850s and 1860s that are littered around my room. And sometimes I just sit down and appreciate them and enjoy them. And they don't really get talked about with my clients unless I'm teaching them about self-care and about hobbies. <laughs> so I think I think you have to have little connecting reminders too and sometimes even hide them in your office you know, to be there as reference for you. Another mindset block to empathy could be the counselor's own theories about human nature. Predictions about human behavior can distract from the client's individual world. So I think this one is talking about your own worldview, your own assumptions, maybe stereotypes that you buy into, maybe racial stereotypes, gender stereotypes, religious stereotypes, uh, stereotypes about uh, mentally ill people, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure that they creep up without you even knowing that they're there. Yes. All of your implicit biases. Yeah, that one almost came up and I almost missed it. I'm sure you missed most of them. And I think we might have a decent idea of what these are, our implicit biases or, you know, the ways that subtly we are all racist, we are all sexist, we are all prejudiced against this or that kind of person. As much as we don't want to be and as much as we try not to be, those implicit biases are still there. How can we overcome those? How can we contain those and minimize their impact? Oh, goodness. I think, you know, it starts with realizing that you can never be an expert, you can never be totally schooled, totally skilled, can never uh, hold that pedestal because we all teach each other so many things. So it, in that way, it means always having that posture of ready to learn, ready to be taught. And when you least expect it and recognize that's what's happening, reflect on that. What I learned today, that's so much about this job that is so rewarding 
is to learn from people and translate that over into one's personal life. And the, the perspective that I gain from the work that I do is not, I cannot imagine how else would I get it and also live what seemingly is a pretty, you know, average life. I'm not over in some foreign country in the trenches providing relief work all the time, day and night. And that perspective kind of becoming my reality. No, I, my phone goes on a certain time. It goes off at a certain time. And I am here in an office setting. So uh, it, to me, it starts with the posture that one takes when they go to work. So am I here to learn or am I here to be the expert? And I like the term posture as opposed to position. You know, one might say, I have this position on women's rights. I have this position on race relations, et cetera, et cetera. And it could be a reasonable one or not. It could be a narrow, constrictive one or not. But I love the idea of a posture because it talks about an overarching mentality or an approach to life. I can have a posture of generosity. I can have a posture of humility, recognizing I don't know everything I need to learn. I have something to learn from everyone. Or a posture of veneration. You know, I can recognize, you know, for me coming from from my faith tradition, I, I see all people as bearing the image and likeness of God and thus possessing incredible dignity and worth and value no matter what their circumstance or no matter who they are. But if I take that posture of veneration, then I'm going to seek to honor and dignify each person as a person. I'm going to see a person as a person, no matter what their skin color. I'm going to see the person primarily as a person, no matter what their sex or gender identity or presentation is. And I think if I take that lens, even though something about them might be odd to me or triggering to me in some way, I should be able to note that, put that aside and say, well, I need to learn from this person and venerate them anyway. And uh, I know we've heard this before from other people, but considering them the professional on their situation or their problems, if they're the professional on their situation, then we are actively listening and we are going to them for uh, filling in the pieces. So it becomes more collaborative because they have everything that is essential, which I think is true. Another mindset empathy blocker could actually be uh, shared experiences. When the counselor has had a similar experience to the client, this can be an empathy blocker. The idea being potentially the counselor could say, oh, well, I've been through that situation. Here's what I did that was helpful for me. I'm going to suggest the same thing or something like that. Why is this a problem? Oh, my goodness. Uh, why is it not a problem? <laughs> right. Really? Uh, and, and to me, this one more than any of the others is uh, so much more pluralized than just in the client-therapist relationship. It's the art of comparison and that one person who goes through one experience can then, you know, be an inspiration or if you do the same things that they did or if they made it through, you can make it through. It it encompasses so many of these other ones you talked about because it, it comes with a lot of assumption and expectation, which how can we ever really truly have of someone else? Because I am not anyone else but myself. It's true. We really are too different. It, it's fascinating to me because I see this happen and you know, I've seen it happen in my personal life. I've seen it happen in professional life. I see it happen across disciplines where it's like, well, you just need to get it together. You need to be able to do this. You need to be able to figure this out. Well, someone else did this. Someone else was able to figure that out. And it's just not, it, it's against the basic posture of humility in that way. It doesn't afford the person the opportunity to be themselves and to navigate their own path. Uh, it, it's incredibly limiting to me. 
Well, I think you said it comes with a lot of expectations and assumptions. And I think that's probably the most powerful thing I took away and can not agree with you more. There's a lot of expectations in that and a lot of assumptions in that. And if everything we talked about comes down to expectations and assumptions and that one encompasses all of them and they're all very subtle it's the kinds of conversations that they have in everyday troubleshooting with family and friends and we are the professionals who are supposed to not make those mistakes we're supposed to be better than that another empathy blocker is the counselor's own needs and fears for instance, the need to be liked or the need to be helpful or the fear of painful feelings or the need to be seen as competent or... The therapist's need? The therapist's uh, need, yes. Yeah. Going to work to get socialization. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and work for pride's sake. Certainly, I think this happens. I think at some point it probably has happened to all of us. Um, it feels good. It feels yeah. good to be validated. It's affirming. And, and if we're not getting that naturally and organically from our colleagues from our supervisors from our clients do we then seek it out do we then treat someone different do we then go above and beyond to maybe get some recognition what does that really come from why do i need to be recognized what is that about people go into the profession without that resolved yeah and that could be dangerous would they come into the profession at all if it was resolved yeah can it ever be truly (laughs) resolved i don't know and we can step into the gray and there's certainly times where i thought um, you know, oh, I'm going to do this and, and they'll th- you know, this will be great. This is what's going to help them, you know, and then, but a boom, it doesn't really take off. They don't really see it in the same way I do because of course they don't. They're not me. They're not you. And if I go with such a flavor of what would I find helpful in this situation, what a disservice I have just done in a way to a degree. I, I kind of get obsessed with this topic of, um, you know, experience and how likely we are to experience the world the same way. And so I've done a lot of little bursts of research and reading on topics like, do we all see the same colors? And um, I had to dig really deep for that one. And the absolute answer is no, no, we don't. We just don't. Uh, taste, no, no, we don't. I mean, we have these congruent experiences because we have reference points, but experience is very different. There's a reason why I might like strawberries and somebody thinks they're terrible. It's, it's just our nervous systems are so independently wired that how we see, how we smell, how we taste, and how we experience our emotions and what they mean to us. What does the sensation of feeling pressure in my chest mean? Does it mean I'm feeling terror and I can't leave the house? Or does it mean that something extremely exciting is going to happen? And sometimes scientists have found uh, examples that dramatic and found that they're experiencing the exact same sensation but they have a totally different relationship to it. And I'm, I'm saying this in a point to point out that we can't possibly know what they're going through by having similar experiences because we didn't experience it with their nervous system, let alone their history of what that nervous system means to them and how they interpret it. Those two variables are huge. They're enormous. One of them would be enormous, but both of them are just outlandishly enormous. And, and it doesn't matter how similar your experiences are. You can't really compare. Not even close. What are some other ways that the counselor's needs can block empathy? I'm thinking in particular about the the need to be liked. And for me, that specifically translates to uh, the desire to be cool, which is a hangover from high school trauma. But I want to be cool. I want people to like me and think, hey, there's that one counselor with the long hair. He's cool. He makes me laugh. He's he's smart. He's witty. He's charming, which can sometimes look like me showing off 
trying to be a little bit more hipster a little bit more hipster <laughs> or showing off things that i know trying to be funny or it can look like maybe not saying things when i should be because i don't want to offend the client mm. or i don't want the client to be uncomfortable or i don't want to alienate them or send them away so i may not interact with them as freely as i could or as authentically as i could because i'm worried about offending them because my need is to be liked in which case i'm not actually functioning i'm not actually functioning at my full capacity so i'm i'm not really helping them this makes me wonder a little bit about the best intervention of all which is to really be oneself to bring one's true self and be present and so i wonder okay if i have a need to be liked by my clients Am I really authentically being myself, okay with myself, loving myself, being validated with myself? What is getting in the way of me being truly present, truly bringing the greatest tool, which is the use of self, to the session, if I have all of this in the way? Because I hear you say things like, try. What is that about? You don't have to try to be yourself, you just be yourself. And yet... We do try and try and try to convince ourselves because it's uh, sometimes uncomfortable to be who we are because it's not the cool person. I'm not always get all my jokes laughed at. And that's that's who I am. And that's not fun because that's not what I was going for. You know, <laughs> uh, It's not the reaction that I wanted. And uh, how sad in a way that that could, that could really get in the way of interacting. It could. So I think this brings us back full circle to that initial idea of a lack of personal development. And, you know, the other the other variation of this would be there. So there's a lack of personal development. The counselor doesn't really know who they are. The counselor isn't fully aware of their own needs. Uh, the counselor isn't fully aware of their own triggers. So things that will make them uncomfortable, things that will activate their own distress, their own trauma. All of those could be lumped in the, the personal development category. And if that personal development has not happened or has happened insufficiently, then the counselor is at risk of not being able to truly empathize and thus not truly being able to serve the client. I agree with all that. And I think it's important to clarify uh, personal development or happened as things that are checked off and completed. And for me, it's I'm personally developing. Ah. It's personal developing. It's yes. it's a it's a fluid <laughs> process. It's always happening. And like I, I said, it's changing like the name of the class at, at the university. Like you can take personal developing class. Like, what, right. what is that? Or a human growth and developing class. <laughs> yeah, Does it really ever end? <laughs> I mean, doesn't. honestly, I, I'm in conversation with myself all the time. I, I am stuck with myself everywhere I go. I've realized this. I cannot escape myself. I'm always with myself and I'm having these conversations with myself about, huh, it's interesting that I acted this way in this interaction. I really surprised myself or wow. I mean, it, to me, it's never an ending. So if someone is engaged in it, then I think they can empathize. I think they can tap into that. Because to me, it never ends. So I would want to be careful with people, you know, like, oh, did I not do well here? Can I not really, you know, identify with my client enough that they would find this helpful because I didn't check the box, development, mm, yeah. complete, you know? I really resonate with that. And I'm really glad you said that because it is process. And most of the things we do as counselors is process. Healing is a process, recovery is a process, growth is a process, learning is a process, and all of these processes hopefully are processes we're doing until we die. So yes, personal developing, it's a process that one should be fully engaged in all the time. 
So score one for mindfulness exercises, metacognition, and self-awareness disciplines of any sort. <laughs> Colin, do you have any last thoughts about empathy blockers or words to words of encouragement to professionals or words of wisdom to students? I guess my last words would be always to be kind to yourself. We make mistakes. Uh, we have snafus. Things happen to us. We act in ways we're not proud of. Uh, we aren't as schooled or researched in an area that we want to be. And we're human. And it's important to be kind to oneself and model that, even if it's just no one else knows, except you can evaluate how kind was I to myself in this interaction, because it shows. It shows in the attitudes, it shows in the ability to connect with other people, whether or not they were part of your little conversation inside your own little head, it, it shows. Um, so I, I think it's important to always keep that, and to be kind to myself, because uh, being so critical and... You know, like I said, I had trouble with, oh, if I made this empathy blocker list and I didn't, it wouldn't afford the grayness of each situation. It wouldn't afford me to really be present. And I'm kind to myself in that. I don't need to go through that whole process. I think it could be helpful. And I realize that it's not a end checklist. It's not, okay, now I've done it and this is completed and I can move forward. So being kind to oneself in this profession, whether it's self-care, whether it's relating with other people, receiving mentoring, asking for advice, that's that's really paramount to me. It's advice that's so simple yet so complex and so deep and a basic principle that we will be working to master for the length of our lives. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Colin, for joining us and sharing your perspectives with us. This has been Smart Counsel. Do be sure and uh, rate and review the podcast. Yep. And you can follow us on Facebook at Smart Counsel Podcast and on Twitter at Smart Counsel 601. And, and there's more to come, I'm sure. And there will be more to come. We will have many fun episodes. We still need to do the episode on cannabis. So ah. we will be back with <laughs> that, more. That's where your mind goes. We need a fun one. So we'll do a fun is, one sometime. Cannabis is soon. No, yes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Meanwhile, we are Smart Counsel. We will be back. please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback and let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at Smart Council 601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com and Reese Basimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Thank you for listening to Smart Council.